Well, those were some warm and fuzzy readings, huh? Wow. Talk about taking the air out of a room. Well, it won't harm you. Go ahead, take a hit. Come on, baby, I love you so much. Nobody's going to know. Go ahead. Everyone has heard such an invite. Some of us have said such an invite. One of the questions I never asked as a young believer, which I wish that I had asked, or I wish someone had answered for me, is why can't I just live the way I want to live as long as I don't hurt anybody? Why can't I sin just a little bit? Well, my friends, today's passage, as we really look at this passage from about 10,000 feet, there's so much. James Montgomery Boyce did this passage just these 29 verses in four different sermons, each 45 minutes to an hour long. I'm not doing that. All right, we're going to fly over 10,000 feet and look at the big themes because they're there. And I believe the Lord wants to speak to each and every one of us his grace and his truth. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today, you'll see the text is in the back of the bulletin to follow along. For this is the fire and brimstone text. Brimstone is sulfur in Middle English, right? And so when the Lord rained down fire and brimstone, in today's English, it's fire and sulfur. This is where we get the word from. And, you know, I'm glad that we only have to do this text once in 30 years of ministry among you, God willing. So this is it. So listen up. What we learn today in this text is that God comes to the rescue in the everyday times of our lives to is that God is just. Three, that not everybody's going to buy it. And four, don't look back. That's what we're going to be just seeing today. And we'll see it anew. I believe it'll help each and every one of us to walk in our lives. God's rescue comes surprisingly in our everyday lives. Two, God is just. Three, not everybody's going to buy it. And four, don't look back. This story all began back in chapter 13, which we were in chapter 13 in about February, all right? When Lot chose, Abraham gave him the choice, and Lot chose, verse 13, verse 11, chapter 13, verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so what we see is this, coming off last week's sermon, Ab Lot is there in Sodom, and Abraham has just begged God to save the righteous in the city. Lord, will you destroy the whole city if there's just but ten people? And the Lord said, look, if there's just ten people, I won't destroy it. But guess what? There's only one. It's Lot and his family. And what we see is the power of Abraham's intercessions, even among the one righteous that's there. So let's look at this passage together. The first thing that we learn in the midst of this chaos is that God's rescue comes to us in a surprising way in our everyday life unexpectedly. Verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them... 
he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. When the angels earlier had approached Abraham, they had approached him in the middle of the day sitting in his tent. Here it is, the end of the day. It was likely that it was still hot due to the fact that this is below sea level, which probably accounts for Lot still being outside in the gate of the city. It's a spacious area where business transactions occurred, judgments occurred in the ancient world. It was a time to hang around with your buddies and your friends, as well as catch up on the gossip. And in Lot's position at the gate indicate that he is now a major player in Sodom. He doesn't live in a tent outside the city anymore. Oh, no. He's in the city. And in some ways, the city is in him. And these two angels, looking like men, appearing as angels unawares, came to him ultimately to warn him that the Lord's going to destroy this wretched city. This is Lot's chance to be rescued. And it came to him in an unexpected way when he was just going about his very business. He had no clue. Such is the same for us as believers. The way God's grace comes to us. God's rescue comes to us like lightning, Bob just read for us. It comes to us when we're not necessarily expecting it, and yet it's true. It does arrive to each and every one of us, and the offer is there of a rescue for Lot and a rescue for us in Jesus Christ. And it's available to all. That's the way it happened to Louis Zamperini. Some of you saw Unbroken, that great story. He was a World War II uh, pilot on B-24, not a pilot, but a, a crew member. He was an Olympic athlete, got shot down, and, and had incredible, unbearable torture in a Japanese POW camp. Came home, had PTSD, never slept a night, became an alcoholic. Then in 1949, his wife, this is four years later, his wife said, she became a Christian, and she said, let's go hear this speaker. It was an unknown speaker at the time named Billy Graham. Let's go to the speaker, and he said, eh, what the heck? He didn't think anything. I'm not going to believe it, but you know, I'll go for your sake, dear. He did. God grabbed him. And from that day forward, God used Louis Zamperini as an evangelist, working for the Billy Graham Association all over the world, talking about the reality of Jesus Christ and the transforming power that only Jesus can give us. It came to Louis unexpectedly. It probably came to you unexpectedly. And it might be coming to you unexpectedly even today. Secondly, we learn that God is just. Verse 13, the angels say to Lot, For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Let me tell you that Sodom has become a wicked city whose practices are an outcry against the Lord. They are terrible little towns whose inhabitants only care for themselves and they brutalize and oppress each other. We naturally think of the sins of these cities as largely sexual in nature. Sodom being the root word for sexual sins outside of God's intention and best for human flourishing within the covenant of marriage. But the Hebrew word for outcry 
Za'asi'aka, say that five times fast. Za'asi'aka is used throughout the scripture to describe the oppressed, the cries of the oppressed, of cries of the brutalized, the cries of the widow of the orphan, the cries of the servant, the oppressed servant, the slaves, the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. Same word, all the same word. Jeremiah uses it to refer to the scream of terror by an individual or city when it's attacked by outsiders. It's the cry of the oppressed and the brutalized. It's a wailing. Scholar Nahum Sarna writes of Sodom, The sin of Sodom, then, is the heinous moral and social corruption and arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. This is confirmed by Ezekiel, who, through his prophecy that the Lord gave him, said of the residents of Sodom, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. See, social violence was the practice du jour of Sodom. There were no human rights, and the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah came from the inhabitants themselves. And God will not have it. And I know how hard it is for some of you this morning to hear this passage read and preached. But we're in a series in Genesis, a call to faith. We left off <laughs> in the beginning of chapter, end of chapter 18, so we're going to chapter 19. And you might be thinking, this is so narrow-minded. To you who might be thinking that this morning, you think I'm wrong, I disagree with you, you think I'm wrong, why doesn't that make you as narrow as me? You might be thinking, well, that's different. You think that I'm eternally lost, and I don't think you're eternally lost. That makes you more narrow than me. To which I would suggest, that's not true. Both the Christian and the secular person believe that self-centeredness and cruelty have very harmful consequences. Because Christians believe our spirit lives on after we die, we also believe that moral and spiritual efforts have an effect for eternity. Secular persons also believe that there are terrible moral and spiritual errors like exploitation and oppression, but since they don't believe in an afterlife, they don't think the consequences of wrongdoing go into eternity. Because Christians think wrongdoing has infinitely more long-term consequences than secular people, does that mean that Christians are somehow more narrow? If I took my friend Bob to lunch at Jake's, Typically, I sit over by the kitchen because it's quieter over there, and we can have a private conversation. The door swings open, and I see the cook look over at Bob and says, that's Bob Andrew. I hate that guy. I'm going to poison his chili. All right? And Bob is, I, I hear that, and I'm like, did I, did I just hear what I think I did? And all of a sudden, the, my waitress brings out the chili and puts it in front of us, and Bob is about to eat. What am I going to do? Stop! And he goes, what are you talking about? I just heard Buford in there. Do you know that guy? He said he's going to kill you. He's going to put poison in your chili. Does that make me narrow-minded? Because I believe that his chili is poisoned? 
Am I more narrow-minded because I think the consequences of your mistake, of what you believe, are more dire? Does that make me narrow-minded? I don't think anybody would think so. Christians aren't more narrow-minded because they think wrong thinking and behavior have eternal effects. And ladies and gentlemen, we have our Sodom and Gomorrahs today. I gotta say it, this whole push for the gender-neutral bathrooms in our culture, friends, that's going to endanger women and children. It's naive to human nature, and the reality is this. God created us male and female, and we, as Christians, are called to live. Now, the orientation is real. I, I know people who struggle with such orientations. But the reality is he created us male and female. And to allow such an initiative in our culture is going to endanger the innocent. And we need to speak out against it. Because maybe God might have to apologize to Sodom for us one day if this continues. I mean, what could possibly go wrong you know, a biological male entering a bathroom of teenage girls. What could go wrong, huh? Right. There are real terrors. And this refers to all who take God's word seriously. This text should grab us. It's meant to. But those who take God's word seriously are not the ones who should shake. As I said last week, sadly... This passage is especially for those who believe nothing and who fear nothing. Until it's too late. My friends, God is merciful and he loves you with an everlasting love, but he's just. He's going to right all wrongs one day. Thank God. And this mercy comes to us unexpectedly. Third, we'll recognize that not all are going to listen to the offering of the rescue. Right? Look at verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot, earlier in the reading, offered the angels refuge, for he knew this city was not a safe place to be in the marketplace at nighttime. Lot's not stupid. He recognizes these men are special, invites them to stay with himself. And after this terrible encounter, the angels blind the crowd, pull Lot back in as they start to press in on Lot, and they announce the judgment of this place. So Lot can think of only two guys. Now, these two guys were among the crowd, according to the text. These are not stand-up dudes, all right? But they're betrothed to his daughters, and he's, well, I want to rescue them. So he goes to them and says, come on, guys, we need to get out of here. The Lord's going to destroy this place. Dad, Dad, you're just joking. That's the reaction there's always been. There will always be some, as you offer out the good news of Jesus Christ, they're not necessarily going to buy it. Randy Pope speaks of this reality. I know no other pastor in all America who's personally led so many people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story, Perimeter Church in Atlanta. But he will tell you, 
He will sit there with a person who's asked great questions. person seems very interested. He walks them through the reality of who we are and who Jesus is and an invitation to walk through the good news of Christ in John's gospel. And more often than not, people will say, nah, I'm not interested. He will walk people through John's gospel. And you would think that the Lord would change them and move on them. And there will, there's more than often than not, people say, he says, are you ready to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord? No, not at all. My friends, we shouldn't be surprised by that by just looking at Lot's future sons-in-law. A clear invitation for rescue, but they just think he's in joking. My friends, we're not joking. This is eternal. And it's for the life God wants you to live. But let's recognize that as we offer that up to people, not all are going to listen to us. So let's keep praying for them. That doesn't mean you give up on people, because we're not God. God says in John 6, 44, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. So if that's the case, but yet he uses us to do so, let's be faithful in prayer, in intercession, like Abraham was. And let's still be open to tell people the good news of Christ as he gives us opportunity. And let's keep praying for revival. Because as God's people do, he does. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story. It's like that whole safe deposit box I mentioned last week. You have a key, God has a key. To open the prayers that we're asking for, we both got to go into our prayer closet and unlock it. And let's see what God does. But just recognize that not all will. Until our dying day, we keep praying. Don't stop praying. And finally, verse 25, don't look back. And God overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Because the principle here is that there are few things more dangerous for the Christian than to look back from that which God has rescued us. Notice Lot, this is not a stand-up guy, all right? They had to drag by the hand Lot, his daughters, and his wife. They had to drag them out of the city. And instead of going to the mountains, which was the ultimate most safe place to go, he said, no, don't take me there. He's kind of like Grima Wormtongue. You know, remember Fellowship of the Rings or Lord of the Rings? Grima Wormtongue is that slimy, just awful sidekick of, of uh, the bad wizard. Whatever the bad wizard. I forget his name. But he's just kind of slimy and does whatever is politically expedient for himself. It's kind of like what Lot's like. And so he begs them to go to Zor. And it's interesting that God spared Zor because of Lot being a righteous man. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? For both Lot and his wife, come on, baby. You know, I love you so much. Take a hit off this. It won't hurt you. Nobody will know. See, a little sin is addictive. And it leads to greater sins like a drug. And it has to be taken in greater doses to have an effect. 
Small sins lead to greater sins until one day it destroys the one committing them. And Lot's wife could not seem to tear herself away from Sodom. She presumably lingered behind, and as she did so, was overtaken by the destruction. She was overtaken by the sulfuric gas as the sulfur came down from out of heaven. And as her corpse lay exposed, it was encrusted in salt and debris so that she became an ancient pillar of salt. Don't laugh. Josephus wrote that he saw this. This ancient historian, nobody questions Josephus. He wasn't even a Christian. All right? He saw this pillar of salt. And this is instructive for each and every one of us this day. Let's not look longingly back in our pre-Christian lives, friends. Remember the bondage you were once in. The endless turmoil and treadmill of the performance wheel that you were on, right? You kept doing the works, doing the works, doing the works. But you weren't sure if it was ever enough until you really met Jesus and the grace that he offers. And it's all offered upon the cross for you. You were in bondage, and you didn't even know it. Now, some of us look back and say, I don't miss those days at all. I was at Zach Brown concert last Friday night. I'm a big Zach Brown fan. The culture was kind of like Sodom. <laughs> I kept saying to my son, I wish she would put her rear end back in her pants. We're not that far. We're really not that far. My friends, are you free on the mountain of the Lord? Or are you in your own spiritual zor? See, this is the last chapter in Genesis that mentions Lot. And there's three other Old Testament passages where he's named. Deuteronomy twice, Psalms once, but it doesn't say anything about him. It just mentions his name. Did Lot ever recover from his worldly way of life? Did not Lot ever truly repent and get back into a proper relationship with the Lord? Scripture is silent. I mean, this is the guy who offered his daughters for a deal with these guys. Did you, I hope you caught that. This is inexcusable. Scholars, I read all types of commentaries this week. Scholars debate back and forth. Maybe he was just trying to offer them as a bluff. Well, what if you're their daughter? Gee, thanks, Dad. For that kind of treatment, this is an awful place. The last word in Genesis about Lot is verse 36 of chapter 19. If you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to read this. Here's what it says, verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. That alone should be enough to turn you to Christ. There's all kinds of explanations for that. They were probably scared that, you know, there's no men anymore. So let's get dad drunk to the point where he won't even recognize what he's doing. Yeah. Creation of the Ammonites and the Moabites. That alone should turn us to Christ. You see, the text really is teaching us, dear friends, that there's two ways ultimately to live. We can live a God-centered life or we can live me-centered lives. And it's so attractive. 
But it doesn't work because God is. In our culture, we want to be like Lot, trying to have the best of both worlds. We want to be under the blessing of God, but yet we really want ourselves to be the center of all things and push God to the margins. You can't push God to the margins. It's impossible. He's pursuing you. And the beauty of this story, where is it? If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot, who offered a daughters for the men. Lot, who had to be dragged out by the hand with his wives and daughters. Peter, who's the one who denied Christ and saw Christ resurrected, wrote this about Lot. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. See, Peter reminds us about Lot, who was a godly man living in an ungodly city, and he made a bad decision of choosing where to live. And he experienced a great deal of unhappiness because of that decision. How about you? And I want you to notice that Peter doesn't say anything about Lot's bad decision. And that's very encouraging. There are some decisions in life that have lasting consequences. Where you live, what career you choose, who you marry. Many people experience great sorrow on account of a life decision that they wish they had made differently. And the good news is that a bad decision needn't ruin your life and will not define you. It may bring you sorrow, but a bad decision can't stop God's grace in your life. Peter doesn't say anything about it, and he wants us to know one thing about Lot, that Lot is a righteous man, and he was the one rescued. As a matter of fact, in that passage, he said it three times. So what's the mark of a righteous person? Peter says it's one who's distressed over the ways of the world around them and tormented over his own sin day after day. The distinguishing mark is not that Lot was without sin. We know that. Nobody's without sin except our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he's our Lord and Savior. And the evidence that Lot was considered a righteous man was that he grieved over sin wherever he saw it. Some of you are in work environments where there's a great deal of unrighteousness. You're not of the world, but you're in the world, and you find yourself distressed and tormented by it. Your distress over, your, over the sin that you see in them and in you is a clear mark of the grace of God and Jesus in your life. See, a true Christian grieves over his sin and grieves over the sin that he sees. And a counterfeit Christian takes it very lightly. It doesn't bother them. Can you see that distinguishing mark in your life? Are you bothered about your sins? Do they distress you? Or have you learned to live with the sins that you know? Come on, baby. Take a hit. Nobody will know. No. The true Christian recognizes it and calls it for what it is. And recognizes the abundant life that can be found in Jesus Christ. My friends, 
That's our offer today in this text. That God comes to us unexpectedly when we least expect it, and he comes to rescue us. That God is fair, and he's just in his decisions. That not all are going to buy it, but let us buy it. And let's not look back. Notice that Abraham, the next morning, wakes up, and what does he see? A cloud of smoke. We don't have any evidence that he ever just talked to Lot ever again. But God answered his prayers. And he will answer ours as we pray for ourselves and for our families and others. As we pray for that God would rescue anybody that we are asking for. Lord, do that in our midst. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this day and we're grateful for your love. We thank you that you esteem our prayers and our opinion. Lord, we pray that the truths of this text would come to our hearts and sink down deeply. That you do rescue us unexpectedly. That you're just. We recognize that the world won't necessarily buy it, but we do, and we're thankful that you've rescued us. We pray if there are any among us this morning that we, they would turn to you and see you afresh in the grace that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to not linger in the past, but to look forward, repent, and believe, and follow you no matter where we're found. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.